The Crematos Diaries, Part 9, by Paul Conroy. Visitors. I've had a toothache for three days. Not just a grumbling molar, but a full-on knife-in-the-eye affair. To compound matters, the Russians delivered their heaviest bombardments of our time in Kherson so far, and had I actually slept, and last night would have been a nightmare. I turned on the radio for the catch-up, and bugger me, for the second time this week it was Rishi Sunak, fresh-faced from his victory over tyrannical bins, but this time waxing lyrical about the joys of the open road and declaring a new war on potholes. You might forgive yourself for thinking that the People's PM had wild away his youth street racing a tuned-up Subaru Impreza around the mean streets of Southampton. He didn't. He spent his formative years creeping in the shadows of the family pharmacy, wearing a cardigan and loafers, saying such things as, Mother dear, the accounts are up to date. May I serve you tea? You look so tired, mother. Norman Sunak Bates, a petrol head you are not. A car in your eyes has self-opening doors, a butler, and a little man whose name you never remember to turn the wheelie thing in the front. I think the toothache may be affecting my mood. Things perked up a little around noon when Zarina and I drove to one of her son's only functioning coffee shops. The cafe, set on a broad tree-lined boulevard, serves decent coffee to soldiers on the way to, or returning from, the front line, a kilometre away on the banks of the Dnipro River. Aside from the not-too-distant sounds of Russian shells landing, all seemed normal, and our good friend Eager joined us, but refused coffee or food with his customary I don't eat anything my wife and I haven't cooked. His wife and children fled Ukraine after a rocket attack on his home in December nearly killed them all. Igor asked us if we'd like to join him delivering aid packages to people down by the river, but he warned us it was one of the most dangerous places in the city. We agreed, and ten minutes later we were driving down a rubble-filled track leading to the banks of the Dnipro River. The houses were tiny, closely spaced cottages with a clear view of the Russian-occupied banks on the east side of the Dnipro. The heat was still oppressive for late September. Skinny dogs barked at our passing cars. The shelling was audibly closer, and we hadn't passed anyone on the street in the last ten minutes. Watch out for drones, said Igor, looking up at the sky before banging on a blue wrought iron gate. We waited a few moments and the door creaked open enough for a nervous-looking lady to peer out. She recognised Igor, visibly relaxed, and invited us in. Before we could enter, a little boy slipped past his mother and into the street. He was a beautiful child of around six or seven with Down syndrome, and his wide, smiling eyes blinked in the bright sunshine. Beaming, he gave me a high-five before leading us inside. The contrast between the crisp blue of the day outside and the tiny cramped dark interior couldn't have been starker. My eyes struggled to distinguish any features in the windowless room, and I was ashamed of the first word that came to mind. Hovel. A term so loaded and distasteful it sickened me. Nonetheless, the only one that did justice to the pitiful conditions in which we stood. The mother stroked her child's hair as she explained her situation. When the Russians came, we never left the house for nine months. I was too afraid that if they saw my son's condition, 
they would take him away, take him to Russia. He's different. The Russians don't like that. I looked again at my surroundings. The airless room's oppressive heat made me feel sick. How anyone survived for nine months in this environment was beyond me. But with such a young, active child and the genuine fear she could lose him if seen by the Russians, it must have driven her to the brink of insanity.